Net-A-Porter presents the Incredible Women podcast, Series 7, Vision and Voice. I'm Alice Casely-Hayford, Content Director at Net-A-Porter, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined for this episode of our seventh series, Vision and Voice, by journalist and climate advocate Sophia Lee. Sophia began her career as a writer and was the entertainment media editor at American Vogue before she left to go freelance in 2017. Passionate about sustainability and equality, she's committed to making discussions around issues such as climate justice, human rights and Web3 more accessible, more digestible and more human, redefining how information is communicated today. I say I'm a climate optimist that's very much rooted in reality. It's proactive hope and action is the antidote to anxiety. So being optimist is continuing the actions over and over again. Lee has written for titles such as New York Magazine, Washington Post, and of course, Porter, and has hosted Meta's brilliant podcast, Climate Talks. Last year, Harvard named her one of the top climate communicators of 2022. Let's meet her. Well, hi, Sophia. Welcome to our Incredible Women podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you. How are you doing? Hi, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. I mean, we're here. We're in London. It's a beautiful day. It's It's not raining. (laughs) Beautiful day. It's not raining for once. And I was worried that we were going to have to do this remote because obviously you're American and based in the US, but it's so fun to actually get to sit down with you live in person. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I think after the pandemic, it's like if you have the option to do it in person, it's always 10 times more worth it. Totally. And the amount of glitches we had via Zoom and digitally. So it's just such fun to have you here right in front of me. But of course, this series is called Vision and Voice. And you use your platform and your voice to talk about such pertinent issues that are really important to you and to so many of us around the world. But for those who are less familiar um, with your work, do you mind telling us a bit about your career trajectory? Yeah, of course. We were talking about it right before this. We may have kind of similar career trajectories, but um, my background is in editorial, Mm -hmm. um, digital editorial specifically. I was at fashionista.com and then I joined Vogue.com quite early. This was before Vogue.com bought style.com. I think there was only around five people working there oh, at the wow. time. Um, yeah, this was in end of 2013, early 2014. Yeah. And then worked my way up, um, was the entertainment media editor there, which is not a position or a title that traditionally exists in the publishing world. It was no. just one of those titles that they created for me because we did so many different jobs and you wore so many different hats. Um, So I think it was kind of like a catch-all. And then I left after four years and then I went freelance. And since then, I've been working on so many different multimedia storytelling, ways of communicating issues such as the climate crisis and intersecting it with social climate justice. And I think at the end of the day, I'm just really very much a futurist. And I'm always thinking of how to storytell the future of our world and how to make that better. And I think that being a futurist is one of the most romantic things we can be as a human. Mm -hmm. And we've done this historically, you know, 
artists and musicians. Like we're all like just trying to storytell the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think currently it's kind of been like robbed from us, this like romanticism of creating a better future mm-hmm. because we very much are in this age of like doom and gloom and post-apocalyptic world. And, you know, during the pandemic, it was like the world is ending. Everything's always ending. And being a futurist is like, no, we're creating like this incredible future that we all want to be part of and live in and changing what doesn't work now. Um, So yeah, that's a huge part of it. Well, it's so refreshing to hear your optimism and romanticism, as you say. But before we get onto that, because I have lots of questions on that in a moment, how did you or what compelled you to make the pivot from, I guess, fashion and editorial into the climate movement? Yeah. So I actually, when I left Vogue.com, I did not know I was going to enter the climate space. I know I wanted to work on impact storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, I called it conscious content. And I think at the end of my time at Vogue, we grew so fast as a team. We covered so much. Like, you know, I launched a lot of Vogue's social platforms, like our Snapchat and different things. Mm -hmm. When we had our Instagram, we had like, you know, a couple thousand followers and now it's in the millions of I don't even know what it is now it's insane um and I think I got very fatigued by this uh, machine of content Mm -hmm. creation even from an editorial standpoint and I started viewing it as almost we live in this age of content pollution and just like we have air pollution Mm -hmm. and noise pollution. And at the beginning, we didn't even realize that we didn't know how it would impact our mental health and just like our our livelihoods. And I think right now we live in this age of content pollution because there's so much content right now and we don't understand how it's going to impact our human evolution, how we take in information in the long term. And I remember also when I was at Vogue, we would work on these really incredible, impactful stories. Um, I'm really grateful to the team there. We work on um, COP21 mm-hmm. and the FEMA warriors that were leading COP21. We were working on the election in mm-hmm. the U.S. We were working on initiatives like Standing Rock. So we worked on a lot of cultural, political, social dynamic stories. Um, and I just also remember that, you know, we would spend months on them. They would come out and the numbers would be good, like... It would be fine. Um, And then my other colleague would write a very, you know, like 300 word piece on Kim Kardashian's date night look. And it would get like (laughs) millions, millions millions and millions um, within 24 hours. And these like very long, elongated, like in-depth pieces wouldn't hit those numbers. And I kind of just was like, what comes first, the Mm -hmm. chicken or the egg? Like, Mm -hmm. is it media companies that dictate what the rest of the world is going to be reading and we're just trying to push them to have, you know, to take in these like impactful stories or is it society at large? That's like, no, you know what? Just do clickbaity content. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this like push and pull chicken Mm -hmm. and egg because you want numbers for the advertisers, but then you're like, but why work at this publication if we're only going to write about these like clickbaity pieces? Mm -hmm. So I left just to explore what I deemed conscious content and impact storytelling Mm -hmm. and see where that could lead me. And I've always have loved um, the environment. And I think that has to do with my upbringing. And I say everyone has a climate story. But at the beginning, I was just working on so many different things. I worked on a piece with CNN about the impact of 
live streaming in our mental health. I worked with the United Nations on the biggest landfill in the U.S. So I was working on a bunch of different stories that I just thought were impactful that I thought needed a voice in a platform. And then surely we're slowly, I realized like most systems all connect back to the climate crisis. And if you work on climate crisis as a storytelling initiative, it really just um, help heal and solve so many other issues that stem from it. Like it was all very intersectional and that was kind of like the biggest beast. So that's like the thing that I ended up deciding to tackle the most. Incredible. You just mentioned your kind of upbringing and that informing your approach in terms of the climate crisis and how we address it. What was it that first sort of inspired the passion? A big part of my story is that um, my parents are from China. Mm -hmm. I'm first generation in the US. And on my dad's side, his dad, so my grandpa and his grandpa, um, they were Buddhists. And in Buddhism, one of the most fundamental teachings is that you have this equilibrium with all living things. Um, so with humans, with animals, with nature at large, um, and you just have this symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. And that was very much instilled in me through my grandparents, through my parents. And I just always been like that. I was always been very connected to nature and we would always give gratitude to our food and the hands that touched it. They were also, you know, farmers in China. Mm -hmm. So that was, so I think all of that was part of my upbringing. And I just thought that was kind of the norm. Um, and then I realized like in the U.S. and in the global north and Western ideology, there is more of a separation actually mm. between humans and nature. Um, and then later on, I was like, wait, but this has to do with the climate crisis as well as like this disconnectedness that we feel with nature, this disembodiment we feel mm -hmm. with nature. So that's kind of a little bit of how I connected all the dots and was like, wait, this all connects together and we're part of it. We are nature. And it's funny because I didn't even connect all the dots mm -hmm. until um, in my late 20s. Um, and so I say everyone has a climate story because we grew up, you know, in tandem with climate. And a lot of people are like, wait, I don't have a climate story. I, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in, you know, this these metropolitan areas. And I think we oftentimes forget that, you know, we ourselves as humans, we mm -hmm. are nature. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even in the city, you have nature all around you. Um, and it's like your first memory of like collecting rocks or it's like how you would spend, you know, countless hours at the beach and not even realize it or you would um always be so fascinated with like insects or the bugs when you're like hiking um or maybe you grew up in different like biospheres or ecosystems and that was part of it but for those who haven't yet had their climate story and obviously we've all had interaction with nature but do you have a recommendation of how people can get sort of better attuned to the crisis or or their climate story yeah um well, I think it's a really exciting scavenger hunt on your own story. So it's first sitting with your memories as a child. I think as children, we're so pure. We have this like wonder, like awe for everything, for nature and each other. Um, and just think about what fascinated you as a child. Was it, you know, the days you spent at the beach? Was it was it food? Was it, you know, your backyard? Was it a body of water? We all have those memories. And then I think it's really going within. I think these days we outsource a lot of 
advice, validation, information. We outsource everything mm-hmm. these days. Um, and a lot of times, if you just go within, first come into that moment of, oh, we ourselves are nature. What does that feel like? What is our inner reality like? And then our outer reality starts to shift. I think having climate action and moving through your life and daily choices and actions, it's so much more sustainable when it comes from this place of like love and gratitude and cherishment for this world and shared home we are in rather than like a fear Mm -hmm. or a scarcity mindset. So those are just a few of the ways. Just when you were talking, I was thinking about my two-year-old son and it's true that love of nature is so innate and so pure. Like his obsession with clouds and ducks is oh, just... clouds <laughs> and ducks. I love it. Clouds and ducks specifically and trees. It's just like the most refreshing thing to see every day. And I don't, I want to hold on to that. And I hope he will too. But I guess for the next generation, there is no choice because the world is on fire. And it's up to to us first and foremost and to them to to do all we can to address that. I think going back to your what you were saying earlier about the infinite scroll and um, your time at Vogue and content pollution, how I think a necessary way to engage people in the climate crisis is to talk about it, I guess, in layman's terms, because for some people it's quite intimidating or make it a bit more accessible. How do you find a way to create content that cuts through the noise? Yeah, I think making it accessible and making it human is like the most fundamental thing we could do as storytellers. And, you know, everything in our lives is technically a story. Mm -hmm. Like my national identity is a story. (laughs) Um, My political identity can be a story. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all stories we tell ourselves. So stories are so moving. It can, you know, shift complete um, cultures and ideologies. So when you tell good stories, when you tell stories that actually resonate with people that are accessible and human, that shifts movements. Mm-hmm. When And when we're talking about the climate movement right now, we often forget that these are like the IPCC reports are very scientific, like hundreds long pages and dissertations that um, and reports that, you know, the average person is just not going to read. And that's OK. I, I get it. They have, you know, food to put on the table mm-hmm. and children to raise. Yeah. Um, but those reports have this way of communicating the information that forgets that climate literacy is like first and foremost something that the average person doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. So just like how if I don't know my ABCs, I don't know how to read or mm-hmm. write. Mm-hmm. And so if someone, the average person doesn't understand basic terminology like carbon emissions or net zero or any of these terminology, then they're not even going to try and understand it um, because it's an entire new language mm-hmm. almost. So making content, making stories that is accessible, that brings them into climate literacy, that helps them learn the ABCs of climate, then they can make their own decisions of where, what they want to do with that information and then take it upon them to have like autonomy agency in the climate movement. Absolutely. Well, that's brilliant advice. I think for me, one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, what a certain brand perceives or defines sustainable, another brand might not. And I think a lot of the terminology still feels, nebulous is the wrong word, but it's not definitive. It's not universal. Um, And, you know, the way that 
some brand specifically talking about fashion, what they deem to be eco-friendly on all of these different terms. It's just really confusing. Is there any way to advise getting around those gray areas? Yeah, 100%. So first and foremost, we just have to accept that sustainability, the definition is up to the beholder. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like your version of healthy Alice can be different from my version Mm -hmm. of healthy. Your version of healthy can be like, oh, I work out and do this. And my version of healthy is like, I need to meditate and da, da, da. So sustainability will mean something different to every single person. And that means it'll mean something different to every single brand as well. That is definitely very confusing because it's catch-all phrase now. It like means everything and nothing nothing. all at once. (laughs) And then when you look at sustainability from how, I guess, brands market it, It's constantly evolving. So it's a good thing to remember that sustainability is an evolving and ever-changing definition itself. Just like I'm not the same Sophia I was two years ago. Mm -hmm. You're not the same Alice Mm -hmm. you were three years ago. We're constantly shifting, evolving people. Sustainability is as well. So I think at the beginning, you know, people thought sustainability was like all about packaging. Um, And now we understand and we know that packaging is like the least the least, yeah. sustainable thing. Um, it is part of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more about like the labor and mm-hmm. the ingredients and the human cost of it and the natural resource mm-hmm. cost of it. So it's it's so nuanced. And I think for some people, it could seem like very overwhelming. But the whole point of sustainability is also to have an open conversation and dialogue with the brand. If you're asking the brand certain questions um, like, hey, what certifications do you use? Where do you guys source your ingredients or materials from and if they don't answer these questions then you have your answer because it should be open dialogue and the brand should have those answers the comparison to what does healthy mean to you or to each of us as individuals that just really (laughs) succinctly um answered it so thank you so much but i think going back to the notion of you being um a first uh, generation or, or the daughter of chinese immigrants and being a woman of color Firstly, in fashion and secondly, in the climate movement. That must be quite a tough gig. Um, Lord knows I faced a lot of prejudice as a black woman in fashion. Is it something that you've experienced or have you ever felt that you've been taken less seriously being um, a woman of colour? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, You know, if you asked me this question five years ago, I probably would have been like, no, it's fine. Like, there was no prejudice. And I think that's actually like a huge part of during like the Stop Asian Hate movement that Mm -hmm. we experienced two years ago was like unearthing and peeling back these micro prejudice moments that Asian Americans are always told just to like not make a fuss about or just continuing as is. And that was like a big part of Mm -hmm. our Asian American identity. Um, is just to fit in and not make a fuss about anything. And, you know, looking back, I I feel like I realized so many micro prejudice moments um, at Vogue. I was there during this Met Gala theme called China Through the Looking Glass. And that was a beautiful celebration. And I think that curation was incredible and it was so moving to see my cultural heritage and the fashion being on a platform. But there was also like leading up to it, just producing event like that and um, working with a lot of working with a lot of people that had prejudice about uh, Chinese people and how they interact in formal settings. That was just um, it was uncomfortable then. And now I just realized it was just completely prejudiced yeah. at that point. Um, and then, you know, there is prejudice against 
age as well. Um, I look quite young and I think I've experienced a lot of ageists on set as well. I've also directed many films and campaigns and I would be on set as the director of like a 50 person crew set. And, you know, there would be every other person on the crew who were hired by the production agency were all white male. They were of a certain age Mm -hmm. and they were very uncomfortable that a seemingly very young Asian woman was like being the director. And there was like very off cuff comments or direct comments to me, or they wouldn't want to um, go in a certain visual direction. And that was a little uncomfortable as well, navigating it because it was like 80% white males Mm -hmm. in their, you know, 40s or. um, And then there's also been so many moments where I actually have found such solidarity with other women like yourself, um, because I think once you've experienced it, you just, that's like a unspoken bond that you're like, I get it, you and I, yeah. Totally. And I think hearing you talking about those microaggressions that you just shrug off, it's kind of a sense of relief. 15 years into my career to be able to finally sit up and be like, God, I experienced all of those things and I shouldn't have had to have shrugged them off as a 21 year old starting out and accepting certain ways of behavior. And I think even now, you know, I'm similarly babyish faced and certain rooms that I walk into, people don't take me seriously. But what would be your advice to, or how do you approach asserting yourself in those situations and sort of digging deep to get that inner confidence when you're in a room of, you know, lots of men in suits who are kind of looking down at you? Yeah, well, I think one, it's important to realize like they're not criticizing my talent or my worth or my confidence, even though it seems like mm. it in the moment mm-hmm. if that's being attacked. It's more a reflection of their own ignorance and prejudice and Amen. insecurities and <laughs> their own narratives they're telling themselves. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, like, we don't need to be the teachers to everyone. There's times when it's definitely like really important to stand your ground. and But it's also like there are certain moments where I'm like, we do not need to hold on to the emotional burden to be everyone's yeah. teacher and help them explore racial identity. And <laughs> it's tricky that though, because post certainly Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate, there was a lot, the onus was on us yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time to be yeah. the teachers and it was exhausting and incredibly depressing how little progress has been made post yeah. both of those movements for a hot minute it was all everyone talked about and we all got commissioned a lot more to do things and then it quietens down. Was that something that you experienced? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think in the, in within the um, Black and Asian community in the US, like we're still very much championing it, but outside of it, it's like so much harder to get your like counterparts to be as engaged mm-hmm. with it. But, you know, They're on a holistic sense. The progress seems very slow. But I think if anything, it united communities of color even more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge part of the long journey to, you know, social and racial justice is having these communities of color come in unity as well. So I would say that was like a beautiful part that has happened from all of it. I completely agree. But optimism (laughs) something that we began talking about at the beginning of the podcast can you tell me a bit more about this romanticism that you're speaking of and how you remain optimistic when things are bloody challenging yeah yeah I think that being an optimist is a choice Mm -hmm. and so if I have a choice I have autonomy and agency in it I would rather 
much rather be an optimist than a pessimist Mm -hmm. or even being apathetic. I think everyone thinks that the opposite of love is hate, but it's Mm -hmm. actually apathy. So Mm -hmm. in the climate space and the climate movement, uh, most people are actually apathetic Mm -hmm. to the climate movement. Um, There's actually this statistic in the U.S. that the majority of people aren't climate deniers. Americans know that climate change is real. They believe in the science. But 70% of Americans are climate delayers. Mm -hmm. Um, They delay it. They don't want to think about it or act on it. They, you know, just want to live their best lives, which (laughs) I understand is a coping mechanism. Um, But that's apathy. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't get us anywhere as well. So um, I say I'm a climate optimist. That's very much rooted in reality. It's proactive hope. And action is the antidote to anxiety. So being optimist is continuing the actions over and over again. You can't just be an optimist and bypass everything and be like, oh, everything's going to be great. No, like being part of optimism is putting the words into action and just continue moving on in the movement because that's the only choice. And also, I think it's a huge privilege to be anything other than a climate optimist, um, to even be like climate pessimist or, you know, why even have kids because the world is ending? Why Mm -hmm. even do this? Um, That's a privilege to say that because if you talk to anyone on the climate front lines in the global south, they are nothing but climate optimists because that is their only choice. Mm -hmm. They're not talking about 2050 or even 2030. They're talking about literally their next season of their harvest, their crops, their livelihoods. The only choice is to be a climate optimist. So I think when people are very climate pessimist or apathetic, it's it's a privilege they don't even realize they're taking. Totally. And speaking about hope and the future, what are your hopes for, I guess, yeah, immediately speaking of the six months ahead or year ahead for you personally in your career, but also globally, what do you hope to see shifting? Well, I think that on a global level, we need to declare a climate emergency. And that sounds scary, but the thing is, is that If you look at any other times we have an emergency, you implement action, funding, resources. So during the pandemic, um, the World Health Organization was like, "Okay, we're in a global pandemic. Mm. And that was able to unlock the action, funding and resources we needed to actually take action on it. Because we haven't declared anything with the climate, we're just like, "Okay, well, let's just wait as these climate disasters happen, Mm. as Maui is on fire, as, you know, these countries are being flooded. Um, And we really need to declare what it actually is Mm -hmm. in order to take the aggressive action it Mm -hmm. needs. Um, And I actually think it will make people feel a little bit more relieved and aligned with the movement because we're kind of like straddling this like, oh, all these climate disasters are happening, but it's not an emergency. Mm -hmm. So it's like, wait, but then what do I do? I just I need to go to work. I need to do this. And it's like if we just declare it, then it's like, oof, okay. We're all on the same page. This is exactly what happens. And if you think about an emergency, like every time you get on flight, the flight attendants will be like, this is what happens when there's an emergency. And they always have to tell you where the emergency exits Mm -hmm. are and that. And we haven't had this like plan or this roadmap from governments Mm -hmm. or any body that's like, this is what happens during emergency and that's what needs to happen. And I, and we need to be kind of like going through those motions and that will actually help us process this better. I completely agree. And to your point earlier, the way in which um, marginalized communities or, you know, the black community, the Asian community have come together 
we need this global coming together to address the emergency and, you know, decide on the community's plan of action. Um, but I think speaking about this, I'm very intrigued to hear how you look after your mental health and your well-being. What does that mean? Because you can't ever switch this off and talking about these things that are an emergency and so important to us. But how do you sort of unwind and look after yourself? Yeah, I think it goes back into the spirituality, whether it be Buddhist techniques. Buddhism is more of a philosophy of life, mm-hmm. not much a religion, but um, it's going back within, going back to the source. Um, and the source is the same as the source of nature. It's going within instead of allowing my state of being to be determined by my external world, allowing my state of being to be determined by my internal world. If my internal world is at peace, it's in harmony, then I can move through the external world, even if it's chaotic through with that mm-hmm. sense. And you were saying, you know, you can never turn this off. And I think a huge part of navigating the climate crisis is like navigating the grief cycle. And I always compare the two. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I'm not in denial sometimes or upset or angry or sad. Like I am all Mm. of those things. But, you know, when you go through the grief cycle, if you've ever lost a loved one, there's about seven stages of emotions you go to. And at first it's denial and then it's the anger, the sadness, da, da, da. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, on the other side of it, you get into acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same thing as navigating the climate crisis because we are in a collective grieving. It's not individual grieving. We're Mm -hmm. collectively grieving. We're in our sixth mass extinction. And we have to work through these stages and this emotional in order to get to the acceptance. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, they just think, you know, well, it's it's too overwhelming. So they stay in the denial or they stay in the anger or the sadness or like, I can't do anything because of capitalism or fossil fuel companies or, you know, or they stay in the sadness and they don't move through the emotions. And the whole part of grieving in a cycle is like, we move through the emotions. Mm-hmm. We end up in acceptance. And there's to be some periods and chapters where we go back into the other stages of grief and then we get back into acceptance. And it's always knowing that acceptance is at the end. And just like if you lost someone, it's not like you forget that that person ever existed. You just end up living with that totally. and accepting it. And that's kind of how I work through the climate crisis. That's incredibly valuable advice. So thank <laughs> you so much. You're an, an amazing storyteller yourself, but who have been, well, not necessarily the storytellers, just the people who have made the biggest impact on your career to date. Yeah, I love other storytellers that connect the dots and like really challenge you to think about why are you thinking this way? Um, I love artists like Ai Weiwei and Hilma F. Clint Mm -hmm. and how they just really intuitively just listen to their own voice. They don't listen to what's happening in the art world or culturally. They're just taking these topics and creating through art and that's kind of their medium. Um, I love, you know, just even modern day people like Trevor Noah and bring a sense of humor to it, bring and making it complex and really like allowing us to make our own critical decisions, Mm -hmm. but with like the right information at play with a sense of humor at play as well. Well, that leads me to my final question, which I mean, you've just mentioned Trevor Noah, but are there any other people whose voice or vision inspires you the most? Yeah, I think... um, I think in the climate space, it's the people that you would never hear on a podcast or have a social media account. It's like the people on the ground, mm. on the front lines, um, continuously fighting for it. I was just talking to someone 
who was part of the Articulations People Indigenous of Brazil. Um, they're the largest indigenous organization in the Amazon and what they're doing right now on the front lines. And, you know, you would never hear these names. Um, they're so inspiring. Like, obviously, um, climate authors and voices like Naomi Klein is also super inspiring. But yeah, I think the people that are the most inspiring are the people that I meet and who have just such a love for their work and are really helping the collective movement. And, you know, they're helping all of us and, you know, someone across the world in a corner, like they would have never even heard their name, but their work is truly impacting them. Oh, well, thank you for all of the work that you do. And thank oh, you gosh. so much <laughs> for joining us today on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Sophia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alice. It's It's been so fun and I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Vision and Voice was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Netaporte's content director, Alice Casely Hayford, and fashion director, Kay Barron. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Emily Wally. Original music by Alexis Adamora, and the series was mixed by Nassan De Silva.